0: Peace be with you. My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Apparently, I'm also a church planting resident. Um, all right. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent. The season of Advent marks the new year, according to the Christian calendar. It's a season of expectant waiting and preparation for the celebration of the birth of Jesus, who is the King of Kings. Over the past few weeks, we have been exploring key passages from the book of Isaiah, passages that explore the implications of the coming of King Jesus into the world. What does it mean that Christ has come into the world? What does that mean for the world? The book of Isaiah foretells three distinct waves of crisis for the city of Jerusalem, and each crisis is increasingly threatening. The first crisis is a minor threat, and it comes from Jerusalem's immediate neighbors. They do some damage, but ultimately they fail. The second crisis is a major threat, and it comes from Assyria. The Assyrian invasion is much more devastating, but Jerusalem is still spared. The third crisis, however, brings total death and destruction. And it comes from Babylon. The Babylonians take the people of Judah into exile and captivity, and the city of Jerusalem is destroyed. There is no longer any hope of being rescued from this destruction. Jerusalem is dead, and her people are carried away into exile. Thankfully, the book of Isaiah does not end there. In fact, there are 27 more chapters And from the ash heap that is Jerusalem, hope will grow. Despite judgment and destruction, things are going to get really good. Jerusalem has been destroyed, but Jerusalem will live again. There will be a new Jerusalem, and she will be established by the Messiah. Now, before we go any further, I want to make something very clear. The new Jerusalem is the bride of Christ, the church. In Galatians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, the Jerusalem above is free and she is our mother. He's talking about the church, the new Jerusalem which descends from heaven to the earth in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 is talking about you and me and the men and women and children who went before us, and the men and women and children who will come after us. All who pray and worship and live holy lives in order to see the city of God established on the earth. So when you hear the phrase, New Jerusalem, apply it to yourself and to the people around you and to the church down the street and to Christians in China and the Middle East. Together, we are the New Jerusalem. We are the city of God among the cities of men, and we exist in the world for the sake of the world. Here in Isaiah 62, we are told a number of different things regarding the New Jerusalem. Number one, the New Jerusalem is established through the unceasing prayer of God's people. Number two, the New Jerusalem exists wherever God's people feast in His presence. And number three, the New Jerusalem expands as we pave a path for all nations to come in. So number one, the new Jerusalem is established through the unceasing prayer of God's people. Verses six and seven. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen. All the day and all the night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Who are the watchmen? Personally, I, I think this is a reference to pastors and religious leaders who are called to guard and serve the city of God with diligence and attentiveness. But really, the identity of the watchman is less important than what the watchmen represent. When the Lord builds up the walls of Jerusalem and sets watchmen upon those walls, the implication is that His people have nothing to fear. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us. Let us find our rest in thee. The new Jerusalem will be safe from all dangers. Her enemies may attack her, but they will not be able to destroy her. What appears to be death, what appears to be defeat, will only further glorify the city of God. In this new world, the new world of the Messiah, faithful death will always give way to glorious resurrection. And so we have nothing to fear. Again, you who, take the, you who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest, and give Him no rest until He establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. What does it mean to put the Lord in remembrance? That's a, that's a wonderfully ambiguous phrase. Who is doing the remembering? Are we remembering the Lord, or are we causing the Lord to remember? I think the answer is both. When we pray, and especially when we pray corporately, when we do what we're doing right now, we remember the Lord, and we cause the Lord to remember us. Now, does that mean that God will forget His promises unless we remind Him? No, it means that God invites us to participate in His work. When we truly trust His promises, we will pray boldly for the fulfillment of those promises. When we truly trust His promises, we will pray boldly for Him to act on our behalf. When I tell my children that they can have ice cream after dinner, they do not let me forget. They take no rest, and they give me no rest. They pester me without ceasing until the promise is fulfilled. Why? Because they know I have the power to fulfill that promise. So when we remind God of His promises, it's an act of faith. God does not forget. Rather, He invites us to express our faith and trust in His promises by calling Him to act on our behalf. The new Jerusalem is established through the unceasing prayer of God's people. Do you pray often for the establishment of the new Jerusalem? Do you pray often for the establishment of the church as a praise before all nations? Do you pray often for God's kingdom come? He wants to hear from you. Technically, He doesn't need your prayers in order to establish the new Jerusalem, but sometimes we have not because we ask not. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. God takes action in response to our prayers. That means prayer is an incredible privilege. Don't be the Christian who neglects to participate in that privilege. Don't be the Christian who passes through life prayerlessly while your brothers and sisters are enjoying their Heavenly Father don't be the Christian who longs for a better future and a better world, but never takes the time to ask for it. Your heavenly Father desires to hear your voice. Do not give him rest until he has has done what he has promised to do, until he makes all things new. Number two, the new Jerusalem exists wherever God's people feast in his presence. Verses 8 and 9, the Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm, I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. So verse 8 opens with God swearing by his right hand and by his mighty arm. This is a reference to the Messiah. It's a reference to Jesus. And I think we can demonstrate that with really a simple word search. In Isaiah chapter 51, the nations wait for the arm of the Lord. In Isaiah 52, the Lord bears his arm before all nations. And his salvation is known to the ends of the earth. And then in Isaiah chapter 53, the arm of the Lord is revealed to be a person. The arm of the Lord is a suffering servant who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He bears our griefs and carries our sorrows and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ is the right hand and mighty arm of the Lord. And what does he do according to verses 8 and 9? He gives us freedom from our enemies so that we can enjoy bread and wine In the sanctuary. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies, and foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored, but those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord, and those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. You know, not that long ago, for a congregation like ours to enjoy bread and wine together in the sanctuary, we actually had to grow grain and bake bread and tend vineyards and ferment wine. And this process created a sense in which we were bringing the fruit of our labors into the sanctuary, which God accepted as a faithful offering and then used as a means of communion with us. God desires to take the fruit of our labor and use it as a means of intimacy and communion. The advent of the grocery store has obscured this. But if you if you take a moment to really think about it, the Lord's Supper can give new meaning and purpose to your everyday jobs. Why? Because God desires to take the fruit of our labor and use it as a means of intimacy and communion. That's, a, that's another sermon for another time. The point is, Jesus gives us freedom from our enemies so that we can enjoy bread and wine in the sanctuary. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of our deliverance. We come together week after week and we offer everything up to God. We are living sacrifices. Our relationships, our work, our successes and failures, our strengths and weaknesses... Our sicknesses, our deepest desires, our sufferings and trials. And here at the Lord's table, God reminds us that in all of these things, the good things and the difficult things, He desires to give Himself to us. His desire is for communion with us. So he takes your small, seemingly insignificant offerings and he turns them into grace sufficient for you and for many others. The New Jerusalem exists wherever God's people feast in his presence. Number three, the New Jerusalem expands as we pave a path for all nations to come in. Verses 10 to 12 go through, go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up, build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the peoples. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out a city not forsaken. For Isaiah's original audience, who were primarily Jewish, they were looking forward to leaving through the gates of Babylon and entering through the gates of Jerusalem. But the restoration of Jerusalem would not just be limited to the Jews. The word people is used twice in verse 10, once singular and once plural. Prepare the way for the people, And lift up a signal over the peoples. The Lord will open the way for the Jews to enter the new Jerusalem. But he will also open the way for all nations. Once his people are delivered, as they return from exile, the Lord commands them to prepare the way, to build up the highway, to remove every obstacle, to pave a path, and to lift up a signal. Why? Because the new Jerusalem will be a city made up of all nations, not just Israel. As we saw a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 2, all the nations shall flow into the new Jerusalem. The fulfillment of this promise begins as the Jews return from exile in Babylon. But the promise culminates in the ministry of King Jesus. Verse 11 is actually quoted in Matthew chapter 21 during the triumphal entry of Jesus. The triumphal entry into what city? Jerusalem. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. So Jesus goes to Jerusalem in order to establish a new Jerusalem. The very city that at one time lay desolate with its people in exile, Jerusalem orchestrates the death of its only hope. Behold, Jerusalem, your salvation has come, and you've murdered him. But the grace of God just keeps coming. It's a glorious thing when God rescues his people from dying. But it's an even more glorious thing when God rescues his people from death. To go on living is great, but to be resurrected is even greater. The right hand and mighty arm of the Lord Jesus Christ is resurrected in order to resurrect a new Jerusalem. And according to verse 11, the salvation and restoration of Jerusalem will be proclaimed to the end of the, to the, end of the earth. The nations will come upon the highways we build for them. Our work will be successful. Now, that doesn't mean that the New Jerusalem expands spontaneously. Clearing and paving a highway is hard, hard work. But again, it's work that we know will be successful. According to Revelation chapter 21, in the New Jerusalem, the nations will walk by the light of the glory of God, and the kings of the earth will bring the glory of the nations into the city. The New Jerusalem is a home for every people and every culture. The church is secure enough in Christ to absorb and redeem every culture of the world. We are built for global diversity. The New Jerusalem, the city of God, is built to go global. And when we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy kingdom come, we're not asking God to bring an end to the world. We're asking Him to redeem the world, to establish the rule and reign of King Jesus over all the nations. The New Jerusalem expands as we pave a path for all the nations to come in. To conclude, let's look once more at verse 12. The people of God shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And the new Jerusalem shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. Who in verse 12 is calling the people of God holy and redeemed? Who is seeking out this new Jerusalem? The nations. According to Isaiah 62, the nations will say of the church, these people are undeniably holy. They have evidently been redeemed by the Lord. The city they are building has not been forsaken. Therefore, let us enter through the gates. That's a beautiful thought, right? But the church doesn't really have that reputation today, does it? In the Western world, the nations have largely turned on the church. They are less and less hospitable and more and more hostile to the city of God. And and to be fair, in many ways, the city of God has failed them. But hear me, listen to me. We will continue to believe Isaiah 62. We need to understand and accept the age in which we live, but we will continue to trust in this glorious future. Every nation who currently rejects the universal sovereignty of King Jesus will one day repent. And so in the meantime, we live by faith. We follow in the footsteps of the right hand and mighty arm of the Lord, Jesus Christ, who joyfully laid down His life for the very people who rejected Him. Therefore, if the cities of men persecute the cities of God, the city of God, we will go on praying and feasting and building until the kingdom comes. We will pray unceasingly for the establishment of the new Jerusalem. We will feast together in the sanctuary of God, and we will pave a path for all nations to come in. Jesus Christ is the right hand and mighty arm of the Lord, the Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, through whom and for whom all things were created. And this week we celebrate that he, that guy, has become a human being. He comes in the night in the form of a helpless child. He comes quietly, but he does not come lightly. He comes with a purpose, He comes to turn our world upside down. He comes to establish a new Jerusalem, to claim the worship and allegiance of every nation on the earth. And he will have what he comes for. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, you are sovereign over the good and you are sovereign over the difficult. We trust you, we thank you, and we pray for your kingdom to come. Jesus, you're the right hand and mighty arm of the Lord. Thank you for bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows. We proclaim today that you are king over everything, king over everything, beginning right here with us. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to purify us, purify the city of God and empower us among the cities of men. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.